Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine time whenever the heck it is you find yourself listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I uh, just watched The Music Man the other day. That was a pretty good time. I was a little confused because at the end, they arrest him, and I was kind of trying to figure out what the charges were. I mean, he sold them band equipment, which they got, and uniforms, which they got, and instruction books, which they got. They were mainly upset that he doesn't know how to play the instruments and can't teach the kids to play them, but they also knew he was planning on leaving town soon anyway, so he wouldn't really have time to teach the kids to play the instruments, even if he did know how to play them. Unless, was he supposed to take the kids with him when he left town? Is that why they're mad at him? Was this supposed to be some kind of like a reverse Pied Piper thing where they want him to lead all the children away because they're annoyed with teens? I mean, I guess he also did lie about not being from Gary, Indiana. So maybe the reason they had him in handcuffs at the end was because they brought him up on a charge of impersonating a Hoosier. That's probably illegal. Mystery solved. Well, we've got 68 pages of comic book to cover and quite a few beverages to consume, so let's get down to it. Without any further ado, let's ado this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Brad Reed. The internet names things with labels unwitty. The fire ants redubbed as the spicy boy, Pity, use real names of the bugs. They're called Solenopsis. And this segment this year is called The Synopsis. Thanks, Brad. Although, as someone who is actively trying to rebrand pistachios as tree clams, hard disagree. And I do think that calling a fire ant a spicy boy is pretty good. Giant Size Defenders number 2. October 1974. H as in Hulk, Hell, and Holocaust. Written by Len Wein, drawed by Gil Kane, inked by Klaus Jansen, colored by Glynis Wein, lettered by Dave Hunt, and edited by Roy Thomas. Defensive lineup. The Incredible Hulk, Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, and the Son of Satan. Previously in the Defenders. Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants created a super mutant which they imaginatively named Alpha, the ultimate mutant. Magneto used Alpha and his nigh-omnipotent powers to take over the UN building in New York as his symbolic first step down the primrose path to world domination. The Defenders and their buddy Professor X attempted to thwart the would-be world beaters, but to little avail. Just when it looked like Magneto's vision board would finally be manifesting his Earth-conquering life desire, Alpha decided, you know what? Fuck this shit. The Ultimate Mutant undid all the damage that he had caused at Magneto's behest and turned the purple and crimson creep and his cohort into adorable little evil babies. Hooray! Next, Alpha plucked a page from the playbook of Stephen Strange and erased all memory of his malicious mutant mentor's attempted planetary conquest from everyone in the world. 
Then, having no interest in raising the babies he had just created, the all-powerful deadbeat dad decided to abandon his previously perfidious progeny and head off into space to buy a pack of cosmic cigarettes or something, never to return. Gadzooks! Will Alpha or Magneto appear in this story? Has Marvel contacted me about writing that Brotherhood of Evil Babies series I pitched back in Tighten Up the Defense number 44? And how does Namor feel about sharks? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, nope. The storyline gets briefly referenced on the first page, but most of this previously in segment was pretty much just a red herring. Tragically, no, but I am definitely still available. And he thinks that they are all cowards. The Hulk is wandering around New York, attempting to return to the Sanctum Sanctimonious after the whole UN kerfuffle. He runs into some police officers who, due to Alpha's mind wipe, are unaware of the Hulk's recent role in saving the planet. The cops start hassling the Jade Giant and try to run him in on a charge of walking well green. Typical. The unprovoked officers start shooting at the Emerald Avenger, and things escalate quickly from there. The Hulk throws a warning car at the police, then the National Guard shows up, there's a giant army robot, it's a whole thing. The Hulk hassling army robot starts firing missiles at the Green Goliath, which annoys him, so he smashes the shit out of the robot. Hooray. The National Guard has their tanks start shooting at the Hulk, because that always works so well for them. Hulk smashes the tanks, but he's pretty sick of this shit, and he just wants to be left alone, so he jumps off into an alley. The distraught defender is unsure how to proceed when he is approached by an adorable freckled little blonde girl with enormous eyes. The refugee from a 1960s velvet painting introduces herself as Lori and tells the Hulk that if he will take her hand and follow her, she will lead him to a safe place where no one will bother him. The not-at-all-ominous Moppet leads the bemused brute down the alley to a building conspicuously decorated with hideous gargoyles. Lori guides the Hulk into the building and down like a million staircases until the unlikely pair find themselves in a huge cavern. The Hulk asks his diminutive tour guide what she calls the subterranean lair, and she informs the surprised-to-be spelunking superhero that she calls it HELL, and also that she's a demon. So there's that. Lori transforms from a Margaret Keene-looking waif into a more traditional-looking demon, and informs the Hulk that Lori is short for Laurox the Lecherous. Ah... Uh... I really hope this story isn't going in the direction that that alliterative moniker would suggest. Fortunately, it isn't. Which is honestly a huge relief, because the idea of a lecherous demon first appearing as a small child is really not cool. Thankfully, instead of doing anything particularly lascivious, Laurox makes a bunch of giant Bruce banners appear, surrounding the Hulk and berating the confused Colossus. Then the shit-talking enormous nuclear physicists start beating the crap out of their enraged emerald alter ego. Bummer. The camera pulls back, and we see that the entire humiliating scene is being viewed in a crystal ball in the Sanctum Sanctimonious by the Hulk's non-teammates, Nighthawk, Valkyrie, and Doctor Strange. A robed and hooded ghostly apparition informs the defenders that the Hulk's torture and imprisonment will continue unless the non-team agrees to submit to the spectral solicitor's unnamed master. Shitty. The otherworldly wraith has some ghost errands to run or something, because he tells our heroes that he's gonna pop out for a bit, but he'll come back later to get their decision. As soon as the multitasking menace departs, the defenders leap into action, combing the city in search of the gargoyle-festooned fortress that houses the Hulk harboring Hellmouth. 
The heroes search for an indeterminate length of time, but without results, and eventually decide that the location must be mystically concealed. Yeah. Or, New York is a pretty big place. But definitely one of those two reasons. The gang is about to give up the search when it occurs to Doctor Strange to seek some outside assistance. Channeling all of his sorcerous might, Steve sends his astral soul self on a harrowing mystical journey that will take it to the very depths of... St. Louis, Missouri itself! That's right. Astral Steve pops into the tastefully appointed study of one Damien Hellstrom. Oh, hell yes. Literally. Steve has heard tales that, in addition to having a super badass name, Hellstrom is an expert in occult lore, especially when it pertains to devilly stuff. When the ghostly image of Steve appears in front of Damon, the renowned devilologist is surprisingly unsurprised. When the spectral sorcerer asks for his assistance, Hellstrom replies, You probably don't want my help. You see, you'd probably never guess this, but I, a man named Damon Hellstrom, harbor a dark secret. You don't say. Steve tells the magnificently monikered occult academician that it's a bit of an emergency, and Hellstrom is like, Okay, buddy, you asked for it. Then makes a gesture, extending three fingers upward on each hand. Okay, so he represents for the West Coast. I mean, it's a little bit surprising considering he's based in St. Louis, but I don't think it's that big a reveal. Actually, it turns out that the particular hand gesture being thrown up is called the Sign of the Trident, and using it transforms Damon into his alter ego, the devil-dadded do-gooder known as the Son of Satan. Hooray! As the son of Satan, Hellstrom has a magic pitchfork, a Dracula cape, and a tattoo of a pentagram on his bare chest. Also, his hair makes little horns on the top of his head, but that's a surprisingly common hairdo in the Marvel Universe that is likely unrelated to his heritage. Steve teleports the perfidious parented professor back to the Sanctum Sanctimonious and fills him in on the Hulknapping situation. The horn-haired hero leaps into action and uses his hellfire-powered pitchfork to lead the defenders to what appears to be a vacant lot. Steve tries to use his magic to reveal the concealed building. No dice. Damon tries to use his magic powers to reveal the concealed building. No dice. Then, Steve has an idea that's just so crazy that it works absolutely 100% of the time. The two magic users use their magic at the same time, and suddenly, an ominous gargoyle-encrusted brownstone appears in front of the heroes. Hooray for lazily written examples of teamwork! The defenders and their Satan-spawned super buddy enter the recently revealed structure. This time, rather than one staircase descending into the darkness, there are four. Hmm. Four heroes? Four staircases? Well, that's convenient and not at all suspicious. The gang decides to split up and teen-tighten their way into this obvious trap. Good call, guys. Steve starts down his path and soon finds himself in a vast chamber, filled with the tortured souls of people who died because Stephen Strange refused to operate on them back when he was a doctor. The ghosts aren't too thrilled with Steve, and yell at him for having been too morose or frightened to perform surgery on them. In the face of this criticism, the Earth's Sorcerer Supreme reacts the way you might expect him to, if you expected him to curl up in the fetal position and whimper, which is what he does. 
When Valkyrie's stairs end, she finds herself confronted by a group of faceless Amazon mannequins with blonde wigs. They tell the existential crisis-prone heroine that she is just like they are, in that she has no past and no real identity. They shove a mirror at the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger, which reveals that like her attackers, Valkyrie too now has a featureless blank face. Also, they beat her up a bunch. Next up is billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk. At the foot of Kyle's stairway, he is accosted and restrained by a bunch of robed medieval monks who are fixing to hang the avian aficionado on account of how he used to be a supervillain and all. Fair enough. Finally, the Son of Satan's pathway comes to a conclusion in a large chamber that is filled with demons. In the middle of the fiendish crowd is a lone figure. When Damon moves closer, he sees that the figure at the nucleus of this nightmarish mob is his beloved mother, and she is being tortured by the demons. Enraged, Hellstrom rushes forward to rescue his mom, but an invisible barrier prevents him from reaching her. Slamming himself repeatedly against a force field, the Hellspawned hero is unable to penetrate the mystical force field and is forced to watch as his mother is tormented by the hosts of Hell. Damn. Like the Hulk's ordeal before it, this scene of psychological torture also has a voyeur watching from a crystal ball. We learn that the Machiavellian fiend who has orchestrated these specifically curated torments for our respective heroes is none other than... Some guy! More specifically, some dead guy, and more specifically than that, some dead guy named Asmodeus. Although even that doesn't narrow things down as much as you might imagine, seeing as how in the Marvel Universe, there are at least eight discrete characters who go by the name Asmodeus. wonder if any of the Asmodeuses have hair horns. Wouldn't surprise me if at least a couple did. This Asmodeus doesn't have hair horns. He used to be a doctor named Dr. Charles Benton, who coincidentally was a colleague of Dr. Strange. Small world. Then he decided to become a leader of an evil cult called, wait for it, the Sons of Satan-ish. Yeah, not Satan, just Satan-ish. Like, they're Satan-adjacent. Or, you know, part Satan. Ooh, kind of like Damon Hellstrom. He's half Satan-ish on his father's side, but he wasn't raised culturally Satanish. Anyways, a while ago, Asmodeus died of a heart attack during a mystical battle against Steve. But the bad news is, Asmodeus's darkish master, the relatively evil, devil-esque demon, Satanish, has loaned the formerly alive leader of his worshippers some of his powers and a few of his spare hench demons, like Laurocks. And if Asmodeus, or Assy as I think I'm going to start calling him now, can capture a different soul, then he gets to swap that other soul out for his soul, and then Assy will be alive again for some reason. I think. Well, old Assy may have more than his fair share of faults, but lack of ambition is not one of them, because he has decided that instead of delivering one soul to his very dark navy blue-hearted master, he is going to deliver five. And guess which five he has chosen? What? No, it's not the starting lineup to the Bad Boys era Detroit Pistons. That's a terrible guess. Those guys' souls are already damned. Especially Bill Lambeer. You are really bad at guessing. No, Assy has decided to swap his soul for the souls of the Defenders and the Son of Satan, who I gotta believe could file some kind of copyright infringement lawsuit against the Sons of Satanish. Unless they're using that name for reasons of parody, which is certainly a possibility. Anyway, 
let's check back in on Steve and see how he's faring in his own personal hell, surrounded by the souls of those he could have saved. Turns out, not great. Steve is miserable and crippled with guilt at the suffering that his inaction caused. For a while. Then he decides not to be, so he isn't. Loudly declaring that feeling guilt over past actions, or lack thereof, is stupid, and that only the actions one plans one may take in the future are important, Steve starts blasting away at his accusers. Take that, damned souls that he could have saved! Take that, the very idea of accountability! Once he starts fighting back, Steve's foes vanish in a puff of smoke. Well, okay then. Meanwhile... Valkyrie is facing off against the faceless Amazons, who are the physical manifestation of her existential angst. She is about to give in to despair and submit to her captors, fearing that having no memory of her past, she is indeed a non-entity who has no legitimate claim to an identity or personhood. Bummer. Then Steve Strange busts in, sorceress guns ablazing, shouting at Val that the past is stupid and dumb and that she is better off without it. Val joins in the fight against her tormentors with renewed vigor, and soon, they too disappear in a puff of smoke. Hooray! Val is still worried that she is a faceless monster with no identity, but Steve shows her a mirror and proves that she does indeed have a face after all, and, moreover, tells her that she is brave and nice and cool. Aww. Val is relieved and the two defenders rush off to free Kyle. The bird-beaked billionaire bad boy is about to be sent swinging from the gallows when Val throws her sword, severing the rope of the noose around his neck. Nice shot! Steve once again proclaims his theory that accountability and the defenders don't mix, and Kyle readily agrees. The monks who are fixing to hang him disappear. Meanwhile, the Hulk is still being pummeled and derided by embiggened Bruce Banners when the Son of Satan bursts in and offers to lend a hand to the verdant victim of bullying Bruce's. Huh. I guess Damon Hellstrom must have escaped from his torture chamber too, only we don't get to see how he managed to do it. My guess is that he pretended to have a stomachache. Then, when the demon guards came in to check on him, he pulled out a fake gun that he had whittled out of soap with his trident and then dyed black with some shoe polish. He took one of the demons hostage, and then, because the other demon was secretly in love with the first demon, they agreed to let Hellstrom go as long as he didn't tell their supervisor about it. Yeah. That's probably what happened. Anyway, the Hulk appreciates Son of Satan's offer of assistance, but he'd prefer to just smash the not-so-puny banners himself. So he does. Hooray. Rather than disappearing in a puff of smoke, the Hulk's antagonists turn into stone for some reason, but I guess the important thing is that they're inert now and aren't bothering anybody. The rest of the defenders burst into the room, and the heroes compare notes. Son of Satan reveals that he realized that all of the personalized tortures they've been experiencing were just illusions, and once he realized that, they could no longer confine or torment him. Oh. I like my version of how he escaped better. Once Hellstrom explains that their tribulations have all been illusory, the walls of the cavern turn to smoke and start swirling around them. When the smoke clears, the confused quintet of crime fighters find themselves in a brightly lit throne room, standing before Steve's old buddy... Asmodeus. Assi fills the defenders in on his plan to yoink their souls for his boss, Satan-ish. Our heroes aren't exactly thrilled about this proposed chain of events, and they voice their disapproval to their somewhat less-than-gracious host. Assi tells them that their consent to his proposal isn't exactly a prerequisite to his proceeding with it. Jerk. Then he blasts him with the power he has borrowed from his lazily named master, and the assembled adventurers begin writhing in agony. Well, four out of five of them do. Damon Hellstrom is completely unaffected. 
Asmodeus asks the defiant demonologist what gives. Hellstrom is like, My father is the actual devil, plus I've got this magic pitchfork. I have an effective immunity to satanic or satanish bullshit magic. So just knock it off already. That's what gives. Assy doesn't want to knock it off already, but before he has much of a chance to object, a nearby clock strikes midnight. Okay. Well, it turns out that midnight was the deadline that Assy had on his soul-nabbing mission, and now his time is up. Whoops. A giant demonic hand erupts from the ground and grabs Asmodeus, dragging him back to hell, or hellish, or wherever. Hooray! The defenders suddenly find themselves sitting unharmed in a vacant lot. Steve thanks the son of Satan for his assistance, and they all agree that Asmodeus seemed like a real piece of shit. Then they all go home. Hooray! Then we get a reprint of a Submariner story that was first printed in February 1954 in Young Men, number 25, The Shark People, written by Bill Everett, drawn by Bill Everett, inked by Bill Everett, lettered by Bill Everett, heck, probably catered by Bill Everett. The 1950s were a tumultuous time for America. What, with the Korean War, the rise of McCarthyism, the historic Brown versus the Board of Education decision, Elvis Presley's domination of the pop charts, the onset of the space race with the Soviet Union, and Arthur Fonzarelli moving into the Cunningham's garage, it's easy to understand how that spate of water-based missing persons in New York City sometimes gets overlooked. But the lessons of those tragedies ought not to be forgotten, lest we repeat the mistakes of the past and are forced to endure similar hardships. Let's take a closer look. The year was 1954. Spirits were high, and so were the waists of men's trousers. But not all was well. People in New York were going missing in droves. There were hundreds of reports of young men and women disappearing into the sea. Some were never heard from again, vanishing without a trace, while others were horribly mutilated by the droves of great white sharks that had inexplicably started appearing in the harbors and rivers of the Big Apple. One woman was recently spotted leaping off the Staten Island Ferry. A police officer dove in after her, but the woman was gone, leaving only her suddenly empty clothing in her wake. Puzzled and disturbed by the mystery, the authorities sought the aid of Namor the Submariner! Hooray! During this period of time in the 50s, the Prince of Atlantis was a helpful, polite young man who respected authority and tucked a tight plaid polo shirt into his high-waisted speedo. So, rather than deriding the police as surface-dwelling fools, yelling imperious wrecks and flexing at them arrogantly, Namor agrees to help out with the investigation. Weird. The next day, the Prince of Abslantis finds a mutilated corpse that has been tossed up onto the docks of the North River. Well, this might seem like an everyday occurrence, this particular corpse has been mutilated by a shark. And furthermore, the waters surrounding the docks are too cold for any normal sharks. Why, it's almost as though the slaughter was perpetrated by some sort of extraordinary shark. The next day, a boat capsizes, seemingly for no reason, and all of the sailors and passengers aboard are killed by a frenzied school of great white sharks. When Namor explores the wreckage and corpses... A weird, creepy dude wearing a plaid suit with no shirt starts talking to the Atlantean amateur sleuth. The weird dude is all like, Looks like those people all got murdered by some awesome sharks who were all hungry for sweet, sweet human flesh, huh? I bet those smart, smart sharks sunk that boat just so they could eat those tasty humans. Hmm. 
I can't put my finger on it, but there's something suspicious about that fella. Nemo responds by telling the guy, What? That's stupid. Sharks are dumb and you're a crazy idiot for thinking they aren't. Now go away. Okay, so there is some through line for the Submariner's personality. A few hours later, Subby is out exploring the rocky coastline near where the debris and corpses washed ashore when he spots the creepy dude from before. The creepo takes off his clothes and dives into the ocean. Curious, the avenging son of Atlantis pursues, but when he plunges into the depths of the briny deep, our hero is surprised that rather than a naked weirdo, he encounters a huge man-eating shark. The shark attacks Namor. Bad move, shark. The sinewy defender of the deep rips the shark's jaws in half, instantly killing it. Damn! The next day, the cops find another corpse washed up on the beach. A naked weirdo with his jaw ripped in half. Hmm. The pieces of the puzzle are starting to fit together for our maritime marvel, and he has begun to formulate a theory. The next day, the amphibian ace returns to the scene of the crime. This time, he sees a young woman emerging from the sea. When the damp detective approaches the young woman, she gets defensive and asks what he wants. Namor responds by saying, Me? Oh, I'm good. I was just thinking about how I'm probably going to murder all the sharks in the water because sharks are jerks. The lady is like, What? No, don't do that. And Namor is like, Aha! You're a murderous shark person who loves murder and is a shark. The shark lady, for shark lady she is indeed, attacks the Atlantean prince, but is no match for the soggy sleuth. The submariner captures his cornered co-combatant and threatens that he will keep her on dry land and let her dehydrate if she doesn't inform on her fellow shark people. Reluctantly, the captured were-shark proceeds to chum the story waters with a big old bucket of exposition. It turns out that her people are underwater aliens from a distant planet. They figured out how to project their minds across space and onto Earth. They had to decide what bodies they wanted to have, so they landed on sharks on account of how sharks are pretty badass. But then they were like, hey, wouldn't it be neat if we could sometimes transform into humans? So they decided to do that, only they aren't as good at being people-shaped, and they can't do it for very long or they die. Oh, and also they have to eat lots of people for some reason, too. When the extraterrestrial were-shark lady finishes her exposition dump, Namor is like, yeah, that's what I figured. Just one more thing. Are you guys going to try to take over the planet? The shape-shifting interstellar shark woman replies, Yup, we're having a big meeting about it tomorrow off the coast of Cape Hatteras. Then, fearing the retribution of her space shark brethren should they learn of her expositioning all over the place, she leaps into the sea and impales herself on a sharp rock. Dang. The next day, the submariner implements his cunning scheme. He catches all the alien space sharks in a giant net. So cunning! He tells the would-be world-conquering were-sharks that unless they return to their home planet, he will haul them out into the sun and leave them there, murdering them all. The space sharks refuse to return to their home planet, so Namor kills them all. Thousands and thousands of alien shark people dehydrate in the hot sun and die. Namor's sailor buddy, a dude named Ben, asks the Atlantean prince why he thought the shape-shifting aliens allowed themselves to be killed rather than return to their world. And the avenging son of Atlantis answers, Because all sharks are natural cowards! Wow. Harsh. 
And also, doesn't really make sense. Classic Submariner. Hey, you remember that chuzzle-witted fuckwad Dane Whitman who was so stoked to fight in the Crusades back in Defenders Number 4? Well, it turns out he had an ancestor who was pals with King Arthur back in the day. We get a reprint story about him from The Black Knight Number 4, November 1955. The Black Knight. Written by Stan Lee, drawn by Fred Kaida, inked by Fred Kaida. Some asshole baron named Sir Guy Wanderell started looting and pillaging from all his neighbors and generally being a real dick. So King Arthur and his good buddy the Black Knight show up and kick his ass. Hooray! Guy doesn't want to get in trouble, so he tells Arthur, Look, I was only looting and plundering and killing everyone weaker than me so I could be rich, and then this lady named Rosamond would like me. That's all. Arthur is like, Well, you really shouldn't have done all that stealing and killing, but I guess since it was to get a girl to like you, that's not so bad. Just don't do it again. What the fuck, Arthur? Bad king. The Black Knight agrees that Art was being too forgiving, especially seeing as how the Black Knight is super into Lady Rosamond. The good guys head back to Camelot, leaving Sir Guy to gloat to himself, Stupid fucking king. I don't give a shit about that lady. I just like stealing shit. Dumbass. Then he starts thinking about how nobody knows who the Black Knight really is, which gives him a sneaky idea. He tells his blacksmith to make a suit of armor that looks like the Black Knight's. Pretty sneaky. Back at Camelot... The Black Knight sneaks into the castle and changes into the secret identity he has as Sir Percy, a cowardly, effete poet that everyone hates. See, Percy can't let everyone know that he's the Black Knight, or else they might like him? Anyway, once he is wearing his Percy duds, he rolls up on Rosamond and is all like, The Black Knight seems like a real chump, always doing rad stuff and saving people. He should write dumb poems like me. Rosamond is like, shut up, Percy. Everyone hates you and your stupid poems, you dumb idiot. The next day, everybody is super surprised when the Black Knight starts looting and robbing people. Nobody can figure out why he would be doing that, but the guy's wearing black armor, so it's definitely him. With a heavy heart, King Arthur declares that he wishes there were some other possible explanation, but that clearly... The Black Knight is now an outlaw, and they'll probably have to kill him. Man, that king is just dumber than a box of stupid, isn't he? Maybe I'm being too harsh on Arthur. You have to look at the times they were living in. I mean, technological advances like longbows and object permanence wouldn't be invented until 1066. Before that, a game of peekaboo could last for weeks, and the person intermittently hiding their face would be considered a mighty wizard. In case you hadn't figured it out, the dude doing the robbing and such was our old buddy Sir Guy wearing his new Black Knight armor. The actual Black Knight shows up and is like, Hey, I didn't steal shit. What gives? But then Sir Guy shows up in his Black Knight duds and is like, Nuh-uh, you were too stealing shit. I'm the real Black Knight. Everybody should shoot arrows at that other guy because he sucks. King Arthur, in his wisdom, decrees, I don't know. You guys both make good points. You should just hack at each other with swords, and I'll just assume that whoever wins is the good guy, okay? <sighs> the two knights start to tussle, and the legit BK is coming out on top. So, Guy breaks away from the combat and convinces the archers to shoot at the real Black Knight. Only problem is, the real Black Knight's armor is arrow-proof, 
so he's just fine. Sir Guy gets shot with a stray arrow, and is unmasked and thrown in the dungeon or something. Hooray! The Black Knight throws a flower to Rosamund, who swoons. Then he sneaks away and comes back as Percy. Percy says a poem, and Rosamund is like, Why don't you shut the fuck up, Percy, you and your stupid fucking poems? Hooray! Then we get a reprint of a Doctor Strange story that first ran in Strange Tales number 119 in April of 1964. Beyond the Purple Veil. Written by Stan Lee, drawn by Steve Ditko, lettered by Art Simak. Steve is hanging out in his sanctum, staring at this giant jewel that he found and thinking about how it's probably evil as heck, but he doesn't know what it does yet. A couple of clumsy burglars bust in through his window, and Steve starts to use his magic powers to subdue them so that they can be handed over to the authorities. But then he stops and is like, These burglars are boring and not worth my time. Now I'm bored and don't feel like magicking them very much anymore. I'll just shove them outside and assume that they'll go away. Then he calls Wong and tells him that he can have the night off. Steve is going to lock himself in his study with his mystical web browser and, um do research all night. Okay, Steve, just make sure you clear that search history when you're done. Soon after Wong leaves, Steve hears a noise in the next room. Rather than standing up and walking the ten feet into the other room, Steve decides to send his astral form to investigate. Turns out those darn burglars came back. They tried to steal the gem that Steve figured was probably evil, and wouldn't you know it, they got sucked inside and imprisoned in another dimension. Eh, could have gone worse for him. A precocious eight-year-old could have smacked them in their respective faces with paint cans and bowling balls. Burgling is rough business. Unlike a certain Kevin McAllister, Stephen Strange doesn't want death, or potentially worse than death, to befall the hapless crooks who broke into his house. The gem that they tried to swipe has transported them to a place called the Purple Dimension, which is filled with some pretty tough customers. So Steve says some magic mumbo-jumbo and hops into the purple dimension himself to rescue his would-be robbers. After passing through the purple veil, Doctor Strange learns that the crooks, along with many other inadvertent adventurers from all walks of life throughout the cosmos, have been taken captive and enslaved by the ruler of the purple dimension. Prince? No. Sadly, and somewhat surprisingly, the ruler of the purple dimension is not Prince. It should be, though. Instead, the dimension is controlled by a frog-faced asshole named Agamon. Agamon tells Steve that he will release his prisoners and return them from whence they came if Steve will allow himself to be captive in their stead. The somewhat uncharacteristically self-sacrificing sorcerer reluctantly agrees to the extra-dimensional apparent amphibian's terms. Agamon places shackles over Doctor Strange's arms and starts gloating, but Steve is like, Not so fast, my fine froggy friend. Then he unleashes a Care Bear stare out of the amulet of Agamotto he wears around his chest, which shatters his chains. Hooray! Agamon and Steve engage in a savage wizard's duel the likes of which few dimensions have ever seen. The two combatants seem evenly matched, and for a time it appears that the battle might end with the mutual destruction of both parties. Strange states that should that be the case, he is willing to accept his fate. In the face of such stubborn bravery, Agamon finally relents and concedes victory to the smug Sorcerer Supreme. After ensuring that his frog-faced foe won't be doing any more enslaving for quite some time, Steve transports himself back to Earth. 
He stops briefly to chat with a policeman, who informs him that two crooks just showed up and turned themselves in, vowing to abandon their lives of crime, and expressing gratitude to Doctor Strange for saving them from beyond a purple veil. A self-satisfied Steve smugly saunters back to his sanctorum, pausing to place upon a pedestal a memento from his recent journey to the purple dimension. A raspberry beret. The kind you might find in a second-hand store. Nah, just kidding. It's that evil giant jewel from the beginning of the story. Can you imagine, though? And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, I have an important question I have to ask you. Yes? Y'all ready for this? Um, okay. Good answer, Corey. We are once again hitting up another giant-sized Defenders issue, and as has become our tradition, I have prepared us an array of beverages to help or hinder us on our journey. Mm. Last time we recorded, for reasons that I do not remember at all, we came up with the idea of having a trio of Manhattans that were themed around three men and a baby. That's true, we did. Why did we do that? I honestly have no idea. So, I prepared us a trio of Manhattans that are three men and a baby themed. So, we will have our first drink to accompany our discussion of the reprints that happen in this issue. We will have our second Manhattan to accompany our discussion of the main story. Mm -hmm. And we will have our third uh, to pair with the minutia segment. Mm. So, to start things off... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are we missing somebody? Oh, a baby? What about the baby? Um, yes. We are going to have a lightly alcoholic drink that is for babies. I think we settled on a... Uh, <laughs> That's right. Okay. Yeah, I think we're going to have a shandy, perhaps. Uh, it's a, a grapefruit lager. You know, like a baby would drink. Yeah, put them right to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, did I ever tell you my grandfather was a doctor? And uh, I guess... Well, he was going back to school to become a radiologist rather than a general practitioner. My mom was teething and was consequently kind of loud. So he apparently used to rub a little bit of phenobarbital on her gums, put her out like a light. I have heard that story. I, you can't no, do that, No, though. you can't do that at all. It was a very bad <laughs> thing to do. Thankfully, my mom did turn out to be a brilliant person, but I do not believe that drugging her with a very potent... I think antipsychotic medicine is necessarily the way to generally achieve that goal. Still, though, like babies can be pretty loud. Good point. Anyway, <laughs> our first drink is inspired by Ted Danson. It is the Sam Malone. Ah. It is a variation on a drink called the Son of a Gun, which is a Manhattan variation that originated in Boston. Sam Malone, of course, was a notorious alcoholic, so had purchased the bar Cheers after he had quit drinking. But while he was still pitching, he used to tear it up quite a bit, and I think this is a drink that he might have enjoyed during that time. Mm. I think an alternate good name for it might be the Blown Save, because he was a relief pitcher who did blow a lot of saves when he was drinking way too much. Mm. So, this drink is... As I said, it's a variation on that, so I, I played a little bit fast and loose with the ingredients, but it is a Irish whiskey that then has a ginger liqueur and some pecho bitters and a little bit of port. And a nice uh, blood orange garnish. Indeed. Very classy. Well, I'm a classy guy. And as Sam would say, cheers. 
So, what'd you think of the backup stories? I liked them in this order. Okay. Namor story. Yeah. Beyond the Purple Veil, Doctor Strange story. Mm -hmm. And Black Knight story. I think that's fair. I might reverse the Black Knight and Doctor Strange story. I like them both pretty well. But Namor is definitely the cream of the crop. Uh, and as such, he will rise to the bottom of the sea. We will do him last. Let's start with your least favorite, the Black Knight story. Okay. What'd you think? I don't understand the need for the He-Man situation. Yeah, he's a real Prince Adam type. Mm -hmm. He's a flowery poet who has a secret identity of the Black Knight. Who and is the Black Arthur's Knight is... Like yeah, like right-hand right -hand man. Yeah, yeah, okay. He's basically like, one side, Lancelot, I'll be running things around here. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I enjoyed it, though. I think it just did bring back the Prince Adam memories to me. He, he's a, a poet who's kind of arrogant, and I enjoy his mannerisms. I think mostly my bar for Black Knight stories has been set pretty low with the crusade bullshit that we dealt with earlier in the Defenders. Sure. And so, like, this one that takes place with, I believe, the original Black Knight, who's, like, his ancestor, I kind of dug it. Arthur seemed like kind of a dumbass to me. Yeah, and I like the old-timey shtick of, I'm gonna frame somebody up by wearing their costume and doing bad things. Yeah. It's a good, simple... Classic plot. Gambit. Classic Gambit as perpetuated by Sir Guy. And I did have a note to myself that just to point out that Sir Guy is a very ugly, ugly person. Yeah, he looks a lot like back... It, and this whole story actually reminded me a lot of the Shining Knight story that we got in one of the Teen Titan backups mm. a while ago. Yeah, he, he's got a real Sir Mordred thing going on. He's got the crazy mustache with the, the goatee that is kind of like just a really elongated soul patch, which... <laughs> but his whole deal is... He's an asshole, so he wants to conquer nearby baronies and take over their land and shit. Not great. Mm -hmm. He gets caught by Arthur, and he's like, but I did it for a good reason. See, I want to be rich so that I can get laid by this lady I like. Mm -hmm. And Arthur's like, well, I think we've all been there. Okay, slap on the wrist. Make sure you don't steal anymore. That's not good leadership, man. No, it's bad leadership. Yeah, good call. Thanks. And yeah, it comes back to bite him on the ass later when Sir Guy does his thingamadoodle and tries to dress up like the Black Knight and doesn't really have a lot of follow through for that plan. Yep. He's like, I'll dress up like the Black Knight and then I'll get everybody to kill the real Black Knight. But he forgot that the Black Knight's invulnerable, which is kind of his whole shtick. Mm -hmm. And then you get the classic ending. Gosh, Tila, do you think that He-Man could ever be as cool as me and Tila's like no you idiot he wins way better than you oh yeah good point here's a poem too bad I can't tell her he thinks to himself or something like that yeah why do you think he can't tell her there's no reason there's no reason for a secret identity going on there nope. he's clearly a member of the nobility at that point so it's not like he's a, a peasant and has to hide it because you've got the rigid hierarchy of fiefdoms back there and feudal law maybe it's one of those dumb rules like you can only have these powers as long as you don't tell the girl that you like. Oh, them. that old chestnut. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the three reprints that we get, they're all like later Golden Age comics. Actually, I'm sorry. They're not all three of them. Just the Namor and the Black Knight one. And they're both just goofy as hell. Mm. 
I forget that about the Golden Age. I will remember one half of the things about the Golden Age, which is I will remember either that they are surprisingly gruesome or that they are goofy as hell. I forget that sometimes they're both, and I really like when that's the case. This Namor one, I know we're not there yet, but... Yeah. Talk about gruesome. Fuck it, let's do the Namor one next. This Namor story is the best. I loved it so much. It was really good. There's been... I guess two series of mysteries going on. Mm -hmm. One of them is that people have been jumping into the river and abandoning their clothes. Or the, the ocean, too. What did I say? River. Okay, yeah, more the ocean than the river. Although I think the Hudson River, maybe. So, like, they're probably going to the ocean from there. You're like that drunk man at the Blazers game who said, what did he say? He said, if you're going to go swimming in the river, make sure you put your goggles on. Yeah. He was saying that as though he were heckling the players Mm -hmm. in some way. He did not like the Portland Trail Blazers. He liked the other team way better. Yeah, I don't remember what that other team was. I think it might have been the Knicks, actually. Mm. Regardless, what had the intonation of heckling was just coming across as random advice. Drunken incoherence. Yes, that too. Mm. Yeah, so maybe that's what was going on with these people that are mysteriously jumping into well, the they river or ocean. wearing their goggles, that's for sure. That's right, but they didn't need to wear goggles because they were secretly shape-shifting space aliens who were also man-eating sharks. That were mentally projecting themselves mm-hmm. onto this planet from their planet. Right, and they would mentally project themselves. They first learned how to do it in the shape of sharks. But also their mental projections had to stay in the water most of the time, like Aquaman rules, basically. Mm -hmm. Because if they were out of the river or ocean for very long, then they would die. And they needed to eat people meat. Yes. And they wanted to take over the world. Apparently by eating people meat. Well, they couldn't take over the world conveniently in their shark form, which is why they learned to make a people-ish form. Yeah. Not a great people form. No. Kind of like a late-era Marlon Brando version of people form. (laughs) For the one guy, anyway. Yeah. Who just, like, is a weird blobby dude who, like, wouldn't button his shirt but had a suit on. No shirt? Yeah, no shirt for his suit. Yeah. It was a very confusing look. I really liked it. That whole... (laughs) I thought you might. That whole exchange was wonderful. I did say that there were two mysteries because the other mystery was that yes these people had been disappearing but also a bunch of man-eating sharks had been eating a lot of people like way way more than normal way more than the normal amount of man-eating sharks in new york city and yeah one of those scenes is there is a panel of sailors whose boat has just capsized for no apparent reason well i think we know why well we do know why but i said no apparent reason okay because it is not immediately apparent because we haven't solved this mystery yet okay okay but they are being eaten and we see their top halves yelling help something's got my legs yeah and another dude's going yay my foot it's gone our gruesome yeah man creepy shit and the other really gruesome thing that happens is namor fights a man-eating shark rips its jaw in half, Mm -hmm. and then a dude washes up on shore the next day whose jaw has been ripped in half, and the cop is like, oh, this looks like a pretty terrible murder. This looks awful. And Namor's like, I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah. (laughs) I know, that was brutal. There are so many different eras of Namor, and this one seems to be, like, helpful and beloved by and of the surface people. 
Yeah, I had a note about that too. Very different than the later yeah, Namor. We saw something pretty similar to this version of Namor when he saved the Arctic base mm-hmm. in the last giant-sized Defenders. But yeah, that was a teenage Namor, and this guy's he's got a few more years on him. He's a very stylish young man. Oh boy, we'll talk about that when we get to the You, you bet you're a sweet bippy we will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this story is just fucking great. I think one of my favorite scenes is when Namor confronts the shapeshifting lady, who I guess doesn't seem to be as bad as the other shapeshifter people. She looks more human-y. She looks more human-y, and she also can be reasoned with to a certain extent. That's right. She's she's like, oh, I told these guys our plan was bad. But yeah, I didn't want to do this, but, you know, we do have to eat people, so what you gonna do? But when Namor confronts her... <laughs> So he wasn't a man at all. Just what I thought. What's behind all this business? Do you shark people hope to conquer the Earth like everyone else from outer space seems to? And she just says, yes, but I told them it wouldn't work. They're all massing for a final briefing tomorrow off Cape Hatteras. I love the, are they trying to take over the Earth like everyone else from space? Yes. Moving on. Yeah. Next. No idea what the motivation is behind them wanting to take over the Earth. Just, it's what people from outer space do. And what's a little bit creepy is there's no attempt at any nuance of morality in the way that Namor handles the situation. He's just like, ah, genocide then. Yep, then it's agreed. That's how we do it. Yep. He did offer them the option of they could have just not come to Earth and tried to take over the planet. But they all decided to stay here because, as we learn at the end, Sharks are all cowards. That's right. That's a valuable lesson. <laughs> it is not a characterization of sharks I would generally make, but Namor feels otherwise, and he is more familiar with the denizens of the deep than I. The final stanza is, Even normal sharks are natural cowards, Ben, and these invaders from space were no exception. They died without even putting up a fight. Hmm. Lousy, cowardly sharks. Mentally projected here from another space dimension world. Typical. Ugh. Boy. Cowards. Mm, One and all. Yeah, but as I said earlier, it has that really nice golden age combination of horrifically gruesome and really fucking goofy. Mm -hmm. And that just makes for really fun reading. I was really glad this was included. It was like a pie not made out of steel and Mm -hmm. I liked it. I liked it too. So, what'd you think of the Doctor Strange story? I learned that when you Google Beyond the Purple Veil, without saying other things about it, you get a bunch of different things that aren't Doctor Strange stories. Like what? I don't remember. I didn't click on any of them because I was using my work computer. Oh, were they pornographic? I don't think so, but... That's I, probably I didn't, for the best. I didn't you wanna... did say they were on a computer and you Googled things. <laughs> yeah, so Isn't I didn't that... want to risk it. It's probably pornography. Yeah, so I went back and I found the Doctor Strange one. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, keeping with the era, goofy and kind of fun. Yeah, this is a little bit later. This one's from 64, so it's uh, early Silver Age stuff. Kind of the dawn of the Marvel era of comics. Yeah, pretty goofy. It's Steve Ditko art and Stanley dialogue. And lettered at midnight by Artie Simek. Classic strange. <laughs> I really enjoyed that intro. When it lists the opening credits, it says, Story conjured up by Stan Lee. Illustrated by the strange sorcery of Steve Ditko. Lettered at midnight by Artie Simek. Mm-hmm. That strikes me as like on The Simpsons when they do the Treehouse of Horror. Mm. When they get to the ones that they've kind of 
run out of things to say and they'll just put like boo in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. One of one of those. But I dug that and it was very well lettered. It was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the dialogue was, that was lettered nicely was uh, was Steve at his steviest. We see that even the earliest incarnations of Steve are remarkably consistent in his arrogance and high handedness. And he's just Steve all the way to the core. And that was kind of almost reassuring in a way. Yeah, but it started off on like the second page with him being a total dick to Wong. Yeah, you were right. I didn't really pick up on it, but uh, let's take a look at how he tells... You you read the part you wanted to read, which is the, you've got the night off, which is a great thing to hear, (laughs) right? Right. Right. I think I was picturing myself in Wong's shoes, and I completely would have stopped listening after you've got the night off. But the way that Steve does say it is, Wong, you may have the evening off. I won't be needing you. Dismissed! (laughs) It is bold with an exclamation point. Like, he really said it like that. Yeah, it is all exclamation points. Yeah, so we see that Steve is definitely steving it up. We also get the introduction that says, This was a favorite story of Ken Kesey and was written about by Tom Wolfe in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Did you verify that? No, I didn't, but here's the thing. The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test is about Ken Kesey, so I'm assuming Ken Kesey said nice things about this story, and then Tom Wolfe wrote that Ken Kesey said nice things about it. Mm-hmm. The way that it's written makes it sound like both of these writers are a fan of this work. Um, you don't really get to, to spread it out that way. That's a good point. Thank you. I think I read that book in high school. I did. I don't really remember too much. There was lots of hippie stuff. Yeah, there was a lot of hippie stuff. Uh, Steve Ditko was... Very, very popular with hippies and people who were doing acid and stuff because he wrote a lot of trippy stuff and the feeling was definitely not mutual. He was very conservative, was actually a big uh, follower of Ayn Rand and would try to uh, insert objectivism philosophy into a lot of his work, especially later on. So it is always kind of funny when you see how beloved by the counterculture early Steve Ditko comics are when he himself was very, very conservative. That idea always sort of tickles me when somebody receives accolades from a group that they really don't want to. Yeah, but it was a pretty fun story. Steve was very Steve. It was kind of kind of nonsense. It was a noble Steve, though. Yeah. It started off with me thinking, so these two bad guys break into his apartment to steal some shit. I got very wet bandit vibes from those guys. They seemed like the bad guys in Home Alone, like, a lot. I have not heard that term before. Huh. How, how does that go? Uh, well, the, the guys who broke into the Home Alone house, they called themselves the Wet Bandits. Oh, I see. Because Daniel Stern's character was trying to rebrand them. Because they would turn on all the faucets when they robbed the house. Ah, I actually don't think I've seen that movie. You're not missing a ton. Although, this story did really want to make me see a version of it that is recast with Stephen Strange in the Macaulay Culkin role. <laughs> oh my! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, if only you listeners could see the... <laughs> the Macaulay Culkin yeah. arrogant faces that we are making. Yep. They're pretty good. Yeah, not bad, us. So it starts off, they break into his house, and he's looking at this giant diamond, which we see Stephen Strange looking at it. It is this softball-sized, flawless diamond. And he's just looking at it, and it's like, This seems like it's just a regular softball-sized, flawless diamond, but there's something about it. Hmm. 
Maybe if I compare it to all of my other softball-sized flawless diamonds, I can uh, see what the difference is. Mm. I'll get them all out and compare and contrast. Crooks break in, see this gem. One of them gets bad vibes about it. The other one doesn't listen to him. Steve catches them, starts to use his powers to sorcerously bind them, and then stops himself and says, You cannot move. You are transfixed to the spot. You... Bah! No. I withdraw those commands. You are not worthy of my time or talents. I shall dispose of you in the quickest manner possible. And he just shoves them outside. I know, but after you said that, I was like, oh man, he's gonna kill those dudes. Oh, is that... Oh... That's what you thought, thought dispose of them in the yeah, quickest manner possible? Mystical cap in the ass. Like. I will rip their jaws in half. No. And then if the police show up, I'll say, they were probably shark men. I don't know. That's, that's probably... That's <laughs> there, probably at this it. point, there's a precedent set for it. Sure. It's like nine sure. years ago. Yeah. It was in the papers. Yeah. Go get the microfiche. It is weird, though, that he decides to go through that because he's already got the spell in place that's going to transfix them. It seems like it's more work for him to reverse the spell to tell them that they're not worth his time. But that's what he does. Then they go to a different realm, etc. Yep. He has some weird incantations. He says something by Dormammu. Like, he swears by Dormammu the way that he swears by other things. Like the Vishanti or the Hori Hos of Hogoth, which is weird to see. I had that note as well. I also noticed he swears by somebody called Mormamu. Because if one Dormammu is not enough... You need more Mamu. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty fun story, some weird stuff. Steve uh, gets props from me in this because he straight up bluffs Agamon in their giant battle at the end. Oh yeah, they were both on their last legs. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm not afraid to die. Oh, he's totally afraid to die. He's totally afraid to die. And Agamon's like, oh, oh God, I don't want to die either. Yeah. Ma! I quit. Yeah. And Steve's like, oh, he was nice. totally stronger than me. Nice work, me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Although he had previously bluffed his way into the situation by pretending to be less powerful than he was. Because he, he's like, yeah, I'll uh, be captive in their space. And then, boom, like Care Bear stares out of the eye of Agamotto at his chest bust the chains that had been binding him, and it's like, said it'd be captive, didn't say it'd stay captive, burn! Yeah, yeah, he did pretty good. Yeah, he did a nice job in this one. Fun story, arrogant Steve from the start, and that's the way that went. Mm-hmm. You ready to start tackling the main story? Does that mean it's time for the second in our, I guess it is a trio of Manhattans. Did we decide that was too much before? Or was it four that was too many? Well, four was definitely too many. We did try three, and that was also too many. So this time we're doing three and a half. <laughs> but they are a little They're smaller. smaller. <laughs> because three is too many. Three and a half surely will be the right amount. I'm not a fucking mathematician, okay. dude. <laughs> to accompany our discussion of the main story, we have the Magnum P.I. Mm. The Magnum P.I. is bullet strong barrel bourbon, a little bit of Kahlua, a little bit of pineapple juice, a little bit of coconut milk, some orange bitters, an amaretto cherry, and a little bit of cinnamon, and mm. a little bit of cayenne pepper, so that it is sweet and tropical, but a little bit spicy, and it'll put some hair on your chest. All right. The Magnum P.I. That's real good. Yeah, it came out pretty nice. Mm. The spice hits you a little bit afterwards, but it's, it is there. Subtle. 
Just like Tom Selleck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was... So, what did you think of the main story? I thought it was pretty good. Um, I thought it was fine. It seemed to me like it was a one-off kind of placeholder. It definitely had that feel to it to me. And even within the story, there seemed to be a fair amount of filler. Like, the cops show up to arrest the Hulk... For no fucking reason. He's walking. He's literally walking home. He's trying to walk home. He's lost. But yeah. But then the cops call the National Guard. I get that. But then there's like a three-page fight with a robot that the National Guard has that seems completely unnecessary. And it's just like, well, we need a couple of pages, so I'll fight a robot. Overall, okay story. Not a ton to it, but I enjoyed a lot of the process of it. I think the part I enjoyed the most was trying to sort out or actually thinking about what it was like in the the brainstorming session where they were trying to sort out what the greatest fears oh of each of, of, of the, the yeah would be yeah i get that because we do get all of those things that that come up we also get son of satan which definitely made me enjoy the story more love me the son of satan pretty badass uh we also get the bad guy in this story is asmodeus who is one of like nine or ten dudes in the marvel universe named asmodeus I think it's a traditional demon name. King of the demons. But this dude is not the king of the demons. He's goofy as heck. He is a chump. He is a straight up chump who is a lackey of satanish. Who is kind of satany, but not all the way. Is that what you were? So I would, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Were they just afraid to say Satan? Well, okay, here's the thing. What you have to remember is the character Satanish uh-huh. was developed in the mid 60s, mid to late 60s. And at that time, language changes and evolves. And in the late 60s, they didn't have the language to express the thought, nah, that's stupid. Let's do something else. Uh. We have come up across this a few times. This reminds me of the Magia more than anything else. Uh. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the thought process was. I think they couldn't say Satan. But clearly, that went out the window pretty soon after because you get Son of Satan. Who is literally... The Son of Satan. And in this comic book. Yes. Hmm. But he's not the Son of Satan-ish. No. Or Satan-esque. Or Satan-y. Mm-mm. Yeah, it struck me as totally dumb. I think by the time this comic came out in the early 70s, there was a relaxation of the comics code. And they were allowed to have supernatural creatures after that. I think the character Satanish came out before then. So I think that may have been part of it. But Marvel Comics has a long history of having a bunch of different stand-ins for Satan who aren't quite Satan, but are kind of, well, for lack of a better word, Satanish. You got your Mephisto, Mm -hmm. you got your Satanish, and you get a host of others, including the other Asmodeus, who is the very demonic... uh, main bad guy of Ghost Rider, who is, you know, very much not this lackey of Satanish. Got it. This Asmodeus is a former colleague of Doctor Strange named Charles Benton, Dr. Charles Benton, mm. who decided that Satanish seemed rad and he was going to start a cult to him, and then he died. But then in this story, he gets another shot if he can trade his soul for five souls. Doesn't work out great for him. It doesn't. And I had a note to myself here, which is, it's just silly of me to, you know, wonder about needlessly complicated plot points (laughs) to make a story happen. But like, there's five easier souls in Manhattan. You gotta believe. Yeah, you gotta believe that. (laughs) Probably not too hard. You don't need to play this on hard mode. No. (laughs) Like. No. It's your last chance, dude. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I got one shot. You got until midnight. Yeah. 
grab five dudes off the street. Maybe start with villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just randos. But yeah, maybe super-powered magicians who have already defeated you. Not the way to go with this one. Maybe the Hulk is not the way to go with this one. I mean, you could probably stick with Nighthawk. <laughs> that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Kyle. Ah. In this issue, it's not at night, so he doesn't. He's, he isn't even as strong as two strong men. It's like a dude in a goofy costume. Yeah. Not even a good goofy costume. Yeah, he doesn't have the bird nose on it anymore. I'm crossing my arms and shaking my head. It's true. He is. If you could see him at home, people. Very disapproving. One thing that we do get, you brought it up earlier, that the cops are a dick to the Hulk for no goddamn reason. They are a dick. And that is really, it, it is driven home by Len Wein's dialogue. The story takes place just after the events of the Defenders, I think 16, where they made Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants into the Brotherhood of Evil Babies. I just that delightful delightful panel i'm still waiting for marvel to contact me and allow me to write brotherhood of evil babies because uh, i think i could knock that one out of the park the the, the puppet ver- muppet version yes mm. yeah they're, they're adorable little moppets who don't actually have powers but like use the most powerful mutant power of all the power of imagination oh and they pretend that they have the powers that they will later develop yeah, I'd, if I was the guys making decisions, I'd be calling you. I, I appreciate that, Corey. Mm-hmm. Maybe someday you'll be the guys who make decisions. Maybe. <laughs> but after they made everybody be babies again, the super mutant wiped everybody's memories and went into space, like Poochie style. Right. And Lenween starts off by saying, For if the Metropolitan Police could recall the Green Goliath's heroism, perhaps they would not so readily have attacked him, thinking him only a near mindless menace. Perhaps, but somehow we doubt it. Mm-hmm. So he's just flat out saying like, yeah, the cops are going to hassle this dude anyway, because that's what cops do. That's so dumb. Yeah, it is really dumb. And what's extra dumb about it is when the National Guards show up, one of the cops is like, we don't need them. Yeah, you're doing really good against this guy. Even if you think he's a menace who should be hassled, recognize the fact that you do not have the tools to do it. They keep shooting at him. Apparently, it is general policy. The Hulk starts doing anything. Shoot him with your pistol. That's not going to do anything except piss him off. The cops have got to know this by now. This is not the first time they've had a run-in with the Hulk. No, they have continuous run-ins with the Hulk. He basically is at least a part-time resident of New York City at this point. And every time they see him, they just start shooting at him. And A, it is antagonistic and a dick move. And two, it doesn't do any good. It just makes him pick up cars and throw them at you. Yeah, as he is trying to say like, dude, don't make me do this. I just want to be left alone. Bad job, guys. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they call in the National Guard. Yeah. And then the National Guard calls in their giant robot. And that robot just gets fucking trashed in a second. Taxpayer money down the drain. Exactly. Thanks a lot, Nixon. Mm. Yeah. Pretty good. Tired of his shit. Wasting my money on robots. Yeah, man. I could use that money to help me whip inflation now. Oh, wait. That was Gerald Ford. But still. That you know slogans of politics (laughs) from that long ago was impressive to me. It doesn't matter which president. Yeah. Either way, whip inflation now. All the time. <laughs> okay. Tired of inflation and these uh, long lines at gas stations. Uh, that was a 70s thing. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Yeah. After he disposes of the robot, this adorable little girl comes and is like, Hulk, come with me. 
And Huck is just like, yeah, okay, cool. Really plays up the Frankenstein vibe Mm -hmm. for the Hulk. Like having him befriend this adorable little Moppet. Mm -hmm. But turns out that adorable Moppet is a demon. Now, did you catch the name of this demon? Was it a French demon? (laughs) Well, it had a French sounding name. The name was Laurox the Lecherous. And when he popped that name... I, I read it Laurel. <laughs> it could be Laurel. <laughs> Either way, it was the the lecherous that stuck out at me. Because I was like, oh no! <laughs> this story is going in a very bad direction. I was sure that... The Hulk was going to have a... Well, you see the Hulk surrounded by a bunch of Bruce Banners. And a dude's like, I'm a demon of lechery! Ah... I thought it was going in a different direction. I was relieved that they just kept beating up to Hulk. And then we don't really hear any more from LaRue. Yeah, no, minor demon. Yep. I guess he's a lackey of a dude who's a lackey of a dude who is a knockoff of Satan. Yeah. Who's a little Satan-y. Yeah. Well, Satan-ish. Yeah. 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 Satan-esque. Then the Defenders decide to contact Son of Satan, which who's a fucking delight. After they go looking for where the Hulk got off to, just by cruising around town. Well, and why do they decide to start looking for the Hulk? Because they see in Doctor Strange's internet that he's having a bad time getting, like, harassed by demons and things. Well, because fucking Asmodeus shows up in, like, spectral form in Steve's office and is like, unless you want bad things to keep happening to the Hulk, then you'll... Turn yourselves over later, I guess. I'll come back. I'll let you think it over. Don't move. And they do go move, which I think was part of the plan initially. But basically they're like, so the Hulk is being horribly tortured and is probably going to die. And I think everybody's response seemed to be, so? Mm. Because then he follows it up with, and remember, if something bad happens to the Hulk, then Bruce Banner will die too. And then they're like, oh, we have to go rescue him. Dude, they barely know Bruce Banner. The Hulk is their friend. That is some fucking bullshit. I don't like it. I don't like it either. Pie made of steel. Indeed. P-Moss. <laughs> yeah, this is a total P-Moss situation. Yeah. So then they go get uh, Son of Satan. They each end up in their own little version of hell. That's the other thing. They had a real Teen Titans approach to problem solving on this one. Yeah. This is probably a trap. Everybody in. <laughs> Steve's like, hey guys, holler if anything happens. Okay, bye. I'm going down my staircase. You guys go yeah. Down. Well, and that's after they do their typical, like, lazy ass approach to t- uh, teamwork, where their version of teamwork is, let's just do whatever we were doing, but at the same time. Mm. And that is always the solution. Steve's personal hell is all of the people that he was like, I don't want to do a surgery on you. He was too frightened or morose. I'm scared or sad. No surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a fucking chump. Val's version of hell is she is being attacked by faceless Amazons who are telling her that she has no real personality because she is a false construct. That one was pretty good. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good too. Creepy. Nighthawks is... He is in medieval times, and they're going to hang him because he was a jerk in the past. Yep, used to be a criminal. So Now you're getting punished. So, yeah. Can't run away from your crime. No way. And Son of Satan's is, he is watching demons torture his mom. That was pretty awful. That was terrible. 
So his is clearly the worst. Mm -hmm. Hulk's was weakness. Hulk was, yeah, being attacked by five banners while Electra's demon is like, yeah, I'm into this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, bro. Yeah, he's the worst. Gross. So those are some okay versions of hell. I mean, I would say that Nighthawks is a little lazy, but the rest, okay. Mm -hmm. not, not necessarily the best, but I get it. Steve is able to escape from his own version of hell by saying, doesn't matter what I did in the past. Only the future can... Only the future matters, stupid past. I don't... He never admits that he had done anything wrong. He is, to the end, insisting that he did not do anything bad, and none of his decisions were ever wrong in the past, but then says, but even if they were, it doesn't matter, because now I'll be good. And that is the moral of all of the people that we see escape. Because he frees himself by deciding he wants to be free. Then he rescues Val and tells her explicitly that the moral is... Doesn't matter what you used to be, matters what you can become. Look, here's a mirror. You look like you. You're not mm -hmm. faceless like you were worried you were. Mm -hmm. Then Val beats up one of her assailants. They go and rescue Kyle, who at that point, I think we're just so like, okay, we get it. The The moral for all of these is the past is dumb. Yeah. Fuck the past. You don't have to have accountability for your actions. Nope. Just yeah, vaguely imply that you won't do whatever bad shit you did anymore. But you don't have to admit that you ever did any bad shit. Mm -hmm. Not a great moral. No. The bad guy is kind of trouncing them all. And then Son of Satan is just like, can't fight me. The devil's my dad. I'm waiting for the rest of the... No, that's not a reference to anything. It's just a song I just wrote that I think that he wrote too. It sounds like it has a rhyme that follows up though. Like a... Okay. Uh, can't fight me. The devil's my dad. You're a jerk and you're not that bad. Oh, wait, he is bad. Bad meaning bad or bad meaning good? That's the question. I cut the head off the devil and I throw it at you. My mighty mic control already bought his saw. The mic king is so bold <laughs> when he rocks and rolls. Black uh, hat is my crown. Mm. Signifying the sound. Signifying we don't play around. Kick it. Mm. <laughs> mm. So true. Oh, it's a good record. It's maybe the best record. It is maybe the best record. Yeah. I would love it if that was the way this issue ended. Was Run DMC, Run DMC busting through the wall oh, like they did in the Walk This Way video. That would have been awesome. And, just, and literally cutting the head off the devil and throwing it at us. The viewer. The viewer. Oh, God. What a missed opportunity. Seriously. Too bad they hadn't been invented yet. And possibly hadn't been born yet. <laughs> now, they were born. This is 70s? This is 74. 74, I would yeah. think so. Yeah, because they weren't, they weren't 13 when Raisin Hell came out. No. So they were around. Hmm. They just would have been Run DMC babies. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh <shit>. boy. <laughs> so that's how the issue ended. Yep. With Run DMC babies. <laughs> Cutting the head off the devil and throwing it at you. Oh, boy. What a good issue. Dang. Maybe the best. There was one other thing that kind of bothered me in the story. It bugs me whenever there is a moment that kind of reminds me of, I think we've discussed it before in Three the Hard Way, Fred Williamson's character has just had the plot explained to him, and it is dumb and doesn't make sense. And his response is, well, you're a little light on the details, but okay. Mm -hmm. There's a moment in this that the caption work explains, this doesn't really make sense, but... Moving on, and it really bugged me, and I hate it when they do that. We see that all of the other characters 
when they have escaped from their hell, the antagonists disappear in a puff of smoke. When the Hulk defeats the Bruce Banners, they turn into rocks instead of smoke, and it is not explained why at any point. But and they they try and play it off like it's clever though, right? They say there's yeah. an analogy in here somewhere, but who has time to yeah. find out, right? Yeah. It's like, well, you do, or you shouldn't have put the analogy in. I wrote that down. I was like, really? Is there one? Yeah. That we're rock just instead to of, Yeah. It says rock instead of smoke. Hmm. There's an interesting analogy to be found somewhere in here, but who has the time to look for it now? Apparently not you, but you made me pay more attention to it. I thought about it for a few minutes and I got nothing. Nope, me either. Hmm. Like, maybe the Bruce Banner is more real than the other antagonist? I hate that. Steam? Smoke? Rocks? I don't know. Fuck. Yeah. That's some deep shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Well, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about about the main story, or are you ready to move into the minutiae? No, I am ready to move on. Okay. Well, Rick is singing us into the minutia. <laughs> I will go fetch our third man and the baby. Very of good. beverages that we will be consuming. <laughs> That's what I had hoped you meant. Okay. Thank you. Hit it, Rick. One, two, three. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. And as we dive into the minutia, we begin the third Manhattan of our three Manhattans and a baby. This one, inspired by Steve Gutenberg, is called The Officer Mahoney. <laughs> That's why it's blue. <laughs> I get it. It is a Manhattan <laughs> that is quotes. tequila, <laughs> squirt, blue caracal, and grapefruit juice because Officer Mahoney doesn't play by the rules. Oh, that is so true. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Pretty good. quite good. Yeah. Tasty, blue, and it breaks all the rules, just like Officer Mahoney. Mm. What do you want to hit up first? Let's talk about who had to be a sucker. Okay. In this issue, who had to be like the fat boys in Crush Groove and act in a way that was counter to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthered the plot? Who just had to be a sucker? Corey? I, in this issue, had the Hulk as the sucker. In what way? Because that uh, Frankenstein moment that you mentioned earlier. And it wasn't so much because we all know that the Hulk really wants friendship and that's like he cherishes it, right? And specifically, we have seen many instances of him getting along very well with uh, little kids. Right. That aside, the way that it was written when he starts going down the creepy staircase with a little girl holding her hand. Mm -hmm. It said that he follows blindly and obediently. And that just didn't sound hulky at all to me. I guess. I did not have that one because I do think it is kind of in character for him to have a, a, a soft spot for the children's. Hulk, like the Wu-Tang Clan, is for the children. <laughs> okay. But Val, on the other hand, hmm. strikes out at her faceless Amazonian captors. She does a judo throw on one of the faceless women... Who is holding her captive? He's not supposed to be able to do She's that. She's not supposed to be able to fight anyone who's female, which got taken to the ridiculous degree that she could not fight robots 
that she decided were female. But demons are okay, apparently. But I guess demons that are female are okay to fight. So that's not Val's deal, man. Maybe it was because the demons had no identity. Or no real substance. Oh, no, because they had no identity because so, they had so blank they had, faces. So even though they were dressed in lady clothes. The robots also did not have faces. They had blank, shiny faces. But they probably identified as female robots because they, they were programmed that way. They were robots. Oh, that drove me crazy. <laughs> yeah. I think it needs to be consistent. I, I mean, I guess this story did come first, no, but... It's asking too much. Yeah, I guess it is. But that's why I had that Val just had to be a sucker and fight against these demonic apparitions who presented as female. Fair enough. Sound effects. What was your favorite sound effect? Oh, there were quite a few. There were a lot. But one of my favorites, definitely, was... When the cops were shooting at Hulk and there was a trio of noises that him getting shot at made, which were scrump, spum, and pwee. Those are the ones that I had too. I thought those were really fun. I think the first noise was him crushing. That was him crushing a missile. A in robot his missile. Yeah. yeah. And then the pwee was like a bullet bouncing off of yeah, him. And yeah. I think the spum was too. Mm-hmm. Pwee. Yeah. I thought those were really fun. But I think my favorite noise is... The Hulk throwing a car at a bunch of cops, and the car makes the noise, Batum! Mm. Which I love because it reminded me of the basketball player, Nicola Batum. Ah. Uh, who played for the Portland Trailblazers for quite some time. Uh, I believe he is now playing for the Charlotte Hornets. Mm. But I always think of the time when in the Olympics... He ran up to a guy and very, very intentionally and brutally uppercut him in the junk. What? And then when the referees came over, he was like, what? I have. Oh, we're not allowed to punch people in the nuts anymore? Whatever. I did not know that story. Yeah, it makes me happy every time I see it. That's hilarious. It, it, yeah, it shouldn't. I think he was making the case that I was just trying to punch the ball away from him, mm. but he clearly just uppercutted that dude in the fucking scrote. Oh, man. <laughs> and then, really, the best part is then he, like, throws his arm wide and does, like, the Robert Parrish, the, like, what, that's a foul? Oh, jeez. Which is amazing. And, yeah, I, I used to watch that kind clip kind of a lot. We can take a look <laughs> at it later. But, batoom! <laughs> <laughs> it will never sound the same. Let's talk about clothes. Okay. Let's talk about all the good things and yeah. the bad things that, that made make me. fashion. <laughs> Let's talk about clothes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what incident of fashion in this comic book did you feel was worthy of note? We have to start by talking about Namor's duds. When Indeed he's... we do. In my mind, it is not a good look, but it is a very confident look. In my mind, it is a good look. It's I don't <laughs> I don't know if everybody could pull it off, but Namor pulls it off beautifully. He's got short shorts that are very tight. Uh huh. He's got a shirt that is very tight. Uh huh. That is, I believe, he's yellow a, and he's black got a couple che- of different check, ones. Check no, it's red and black checks. It's yellow and black in the one that I saw, but the coloration might have been different. I was reading online. Oh yeah, it was yellow in mine. Huh. Yeah, but it is he is wearing a tight polo shirt with a wide lapel uh, and Speedos, and I think the dude looks rad. Dude is Donald ducking around in a couple of times 
in this comic book where he's wearing the Speedo with different tops because later on he's wearing it with a green windbreaker. But we're not done with this. The top is tucked into his Speedos. Yeah. And he's wearing, like, calf-height boots. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. I thought I thought that was obvious. I mean, how <laughs> else would you complete that look? I don't know. I don't know, man. If it's the 50s and you get to Donald Duck around because you're Namor, fucking go for it, dude. I think he looks rad. And he just is carrying that look off with aplomb. He did do that, yes. I agree there. And, yeah, later on he's... Donald ducking around in his speedos with a uh, green windbreaker on. That's also a good look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he has he's very consistent in that. I guess in the fifties you could wear a speedo and little else as long as it was a high waisted speedo, mm-hmm. and uh, you had a nice tight Gene Kelly style shirt on. Just tuck it into those speedos. It, yep. Call it good. Yeah, I think that is a brilliant look. Okay. If you can pull that off, you fucking go for it. It man. is a confident thing to do. At which. Is very much in character for Namor. Was there other fashion in the comic book you want to talk about? In the Namor one? In any of them. Yeah, I thought that that goof of a bad guy in the main story, his his outfit was, was pretty funny. Like, it was just like, okay, we're going to go full Satan. Yeah, he was like, he was like wearing almost a satan pajama onesie it looked to me like the those costume stores that pop up around halloween time like if you're like i'm gonna go get a devil costume right but it's the off-brand not quite the devil because they can't call it the devil it's the satanish right he's wearing (laughs) he's wearing yeah the dollar store halloween costume satanish Mm -hmm. costume little satan yeah it, it was it's really dumb and goofy looking i appreciated that as well I liked the look on the Black Knight's alter ego, whose name eludes me, but the his Prince Adam, I thought had some nice, like, flowy tunics very... that made him look very poety, which is the look he was going for. Real fancy boy. We see that even in the Middle Ages, if you were a bad guy, green and purple, way mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's most of what I had. Whenever Son of Satan pops up, I like his look. It's good. Pretty good. Pretty good stuff. Yep. Corey. Mm-hmm. What were the best words? Ah, yes. Okay. I have a series of best words, but I'm going to need your help to complete them. But I'll do the runner-up first. Okay. What's the runner-up? The runner-up is is a cop that's mad about the Hulk throwing the car. <laughs> and he says something like, he threw that car like a damn volleyball. <laughs> like, he really hates volleyballs. It kind of cracked me up. Jeez, he tossed that two-ton patrol car like like it was a blasted volleyball. A blasted volleyball. Oh, I hate <laughs> volleyball. You know who didn't hate volleyball? Hmm. Tom Selleck. <laughs> he was a skilled and accomplished volleyballman. It doesn't surprise me. No, there's a lot he could do when he put his mind to it. I'm sure that is the case. All right, uh, did you want to do a dialogue you liked? I wonder if we have the same Gosh. one. Was yours from the Namor story? Yep. Because I had like four different things from the Namor story that I think were kind of tied for my favorite. I have a back and forth that we got. Okay, read. is it the Shark Man? Mm-hmm. Okay, we can get to that. Let me do my back my because I think that is actually my favorite too. But I also did really like what I alluded to earlier: the uh, sharks are coward speech that he gave. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I just can't believe it, Namor. They died without putting up a fight. Even normal sharks are natural cowards, Ben, and these invaders from space were no exception. Mm. I really liked that. 
I really, really liked when, after his fight with the man-eating shark, who it turned out was a space alien, mm-hmm. a cop the next day finds a washed-up body on the shore that has its jaw ripped in half and says, Good lord, his face is split wide open. His jaw's ripped apart completely. What caused it? And Namor's response is, Hmm, I don't think I'd worry too much about it, officer. I'm beginning to get the glimmer of an idea about this whole gruesome business. Right now, this case before you looks like a homicide. Someone killed that man. Okay, first of all, Namor, that was you. But before I'm through, well, go ahead and report it as suspected murder. And the face that the cop makes is so hilarious. (laughs) He looks like a really angry monkey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, you know what, go ahead and report this man who has had his jaw ripped in half as a murder, if that's what you feel like you gotta do. Yeah, I uh, guess. Yeah, that really, I, I loved that whole scene. But, yes, like you, my favorite was his back and forth. Uh, do you want to be Namor, and I'll be the, the shark man, or do you want to be the shark man, and I'll be Namor? It was on that same page. Oh, no, I have a different back and forth. Oh. Between Namor and... and... And the shark, a different shark man. Okay, well, let's do this one. Do you want to be the shark man or Namor in this one? Because this one's my favorite. Uh, Why don't you be the shark man? Okay. Unless the sharks were exceedingly hungry, huh, mister? Unless they were so close to starving to death, so desperate, that they literally swamped the boat in their quest for food for rich human flesh. Way to be subtle, buddy. But Namor's response is, Ridiculous, man! No shark has that much intelligence. You talk like a lunatic. Who are you anyway? <laughs> Classic Peak Namor. Namor. Classic. What was your favorite? Uh, mine is from the part when Namor has essentially captured all of the shark alien people. Okay. And it goes from here to here to here. Okay. You want to be Namor or the shark man? You do a pretty good Namor. Why don't you do the Namor? Okay. We've got you trapped, Mr. Space Shark. You've got your choice. Either project your mentalities back to the planet you came from, or be hauled up on dry land to die under the hot sun. No, no, we can't go back, we can't. Then suffer the fate of all would-be conquerors of Earth, you poor deluded fish. No, no, And that leads us to the, yeah, I can't believe it, Namor, they died without a fight. Because all sharks are cowards. Yep. That is such a bold statement. I want to make it clear, the thoughts expressed by Namor are not necessarily those of this program. I don't need sharks to have any more reason to try to eat my delicious flesh. I don't think that sharks are cowards. I think sharks are very brave. Majestic. Majestic. Brave. Titans of the sea. Captains mm-hmm. of the Industry. Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Captains of the oceanic industry. Very good. Well done, shark. Here's to sharks. Oops. <laughs> that oops is because you drank all of your I just... three men. <laughs> and now it's time to move on to the baby. Fair enough. Thank you. And now we are having a nice grapefruit shandy, which is a mere 4.2% alcohol, like a baby would drink. Nah. So, Corey. Yes. What was your favorite panel? Oh, let's see. 
Oh, is it the sharks eating the people? Yes. It's that? Yeah. It is gruesome. It is super gruesome. It is these people making horrific faces. I already read the dialogue from it, but it's the, help, somebody's got my legs, yeah! It's just awful. And the, yeah, my foot, it's gone. Ow! Remind me of that Nicolas Cage movie we saw with the... Oh, Ghost Rider? <laughs> the USS Indianapolis movie. Man. Oh, that movie. <laughs> Spam! <laughs> that one. Oh, boy. I don't think I'll ever like sharks. I don't think I could be <laughs> friends with a shark. I don't think I would ever let a shark move into my neighborhood. Those poor, poor bastards. Oh, God, I can't believe they interviewed them at the end like that. And it really seems like the question at the end was... Do you think sharks are good? Like, after seeing sharks eat all of my friends, I don't think I'll ever like sharks. I felt so bad for laughing at those guys. <laughs> yeah, but you were, you're not laughing at them. You're at laughing at the interview. <laughs> because that is the most ham-handed interview question imaginable. And we don't get to see the question. We just see the reaction. But, yeah, there's no way it was anything other than, like, so now, do you like sharks? <laughs> what do you... There's got to be more interesting interview questions than that to ask somebody that's been through. Like, that experience is freaking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of any, but I'm sure there are. I'm sure well, there I are mean, some. now you can know to ask them, do you think sharks are cowards? <laughs> do you like spam? <laughs> what if that shark was really an alien who was invading <laughs> from projecting their mentality from another dimension? Hmm. How would you like it if Namor ripped that man's jaw in half? I think that'd be fine. <laughs> there, see? Better okay. question. Yeah. All right, we got this. Yeah. Panels. My fa my favorite panel? Gosh, there are a ton from the Namor story. The confrontation that we read aloud between Namor and the shark man. Marlon Brando. The Marlon Brando looking shark man where he... <laughs> More bread in your cheeks. Where, yeah, where he's just says, Ridiculous, man! You're a lunatic! Who are you? <laughs> Such good name work. I kind of um, want to just say that to people that are being that way. I don't so think refreshing. I can pull it off. Yeah. You gotta be a name work. You've said similar things to people. What did you say? That? That's come up, but nobody wants any banana cakes. Move it along. <laughs> yeah, I may have said something like that to somebody. Do you remember his response? I, I do. He moved it along. He said, Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. And then he walked off. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, I was telling you earlier, I, I started at work. Uh, we have a running thing where the writing surface that we offer people when they sign their credit card slips doesn't work the best. When they complain that the pens won't work, I uh, I started asking people if they were using the pointy. And I think that's pretty funny. You don't think it's that funny? Well, it's just when it's directed at you, like earlier today. <laughs> it's a very funny joke. Corey. I know which end of a pen is up. Yeah, I know. That's the whole point. The other people do, too. The whole point? Yeah, the whole pointy end of the pet. Yeah, it doesn't feel good to be the butt of that joke. No, it doesn't, Corey. I'm sorry. That's a pun. Yeah, no, I know. Okay. Because the other end is the, the non-pointy end of the pen is the butt of the pen. Yeah. It's not really a common way to refer to that part of the pen. Oh, puns don't respect common parlance. <laughs> or anything. <laughs> They're real Officer Mahoney's. They really are. <laughs> Lousy puns. Ah. Man, I bet Commandant Mossard hates puns. Uh, probably. Oh, that Commandant Mossard. Mm. Such a stick in the mud. Stickler. Mm. In the mud. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite panel was, <laughs> I think, from the main issue. And it's a minor thing, but it's when we first see 
son of Satan. Doctor Strange astrally projects to his house in St. Louis. Typical um, Strange, right? Like, just showing up in somebody's room. Looking like a total ghost, because this issue is inked by Klaus Janssen, so, like, there are certain panels that look incredibly dramatic. Mm. The main pencil works are done by Gil Kane, who is spectacular. I don't think this issue is his best work. But this issue, it looks really cool. There's a very dramatic astral projection of Doctor Strange appearing behind Damon Hellstrom, who looks like he has a migraine from concentrating on his statue of a genie doing the cabbage patch. <laughs> I can't, it does look like that. He's reading a book, but it does look like that. I think that he is just like, oh, why is that genie doing the cabbage patch in my statue? Oh, it's giving me such a headache. But yeah, honestly, it is a beautifully drawn panel, and what is happening in it is just really weird. There is a statue in the foreground that just, I, I've said it several times now, but it just looks like a genie doing the cabbage patch, and I don't know why that statue is in his den, and I don't think he does either, which is maybe why he's got such a headache. But you could also read it as, oh shit, Doctor Strange. Mm. And we see that Doctor Strange shows up in astral form behind this guy. And they have never met before at this point. This is the first time that Doctor Strange and Damon Hellstrom have met. He doesn't know that Damon Hellstrom is the son of Satan. Because when he transforms, he's like, So the rumors are true. I'd heard rumblings that you might be the devil's kid. But yeah, I just really enjoyed that panel. I thought it was beautifully drawn. And there was just so much weird stuff going on in it. I had a, a backup panel that was the first instance of when all the bad banners show up and Hulk's having his bad time and they're all just big, creepy, laughing banner faces imposed over the Hulk and it's creepy and you feel bad for him. Yeah, I thought that was also really nicely done. It's tough. In this issue, the pages are not numbered, so it's kind of difficult to tell where they are finding them again. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Indeed. Pretty cool. Corey. Yes. Who do you think was the worst offender in this issue? It's kind of an easy go-to, and I feel bad for doing it a lot. But look at him, Kyle. He's just like a guy that did some bad shit and then feels bad about it and gets caught and wah, wah, wah. Yeah, and he's also the only defender who doesn't take any active part in freeing himself from his hellscape. I had the same one. He just doesn't do much. He kind of doesn't really contribute anything. Bad job, bird nose. Yeah, and I feel like he was probably the one in the background that when Asmodeus was saying, if you don't do anything, then I'll kill the Hulk, I feel like he was probably the one going like, who cares? And that was why Asmodeus had to say, and if you kill him, then you'll be killing the mind of brilliant scientist Bruce Banner. And then he was like, well, I like science, okay. Science makes money. Yeah. I like money. I like money the best. Because I'm a jerk. I'm a jerk named Kyle. Ugh. I hate that thing that we said that he just thought. <laughs> it's typical Kyle. So typical. So yeah, I also had him as the worst offender. We have an accord. Indeed. Conversely, Corey, who was the best defender? Ah. I had a runner-up situation. Okay, who was your runner-up? Runner-up, I'm going to give it to Mr. Hellstrom. Oh, okay. Honorary. Yeah. Defender, as it is. But, um, you know, good job. Yeah, man. Okay. Good job. Well, I actually have Damon Hellstrom as the best defender. I thought he did the best job. 
He was the only one who escaped from his imprisonment. Somehow. <laughs> somehow, unassisted, besides Doctor Strange, who, I mean, kind of his being a sociopath was how Doctor Strange escaped. That ego He's like, I've assistance. never done anything wrong in my life, and even if I did, it doesn't matter, was how he escaped. So, I don't think that really counts. And... Without the son of Satan, they never would have found the house where the dude was. He freed all of the other defenders when Asmodeus was blasting them with his Satanesque ray of Sataniness. Satanishness. Satan light. Diet Satan. Mm-hmm. Satan zero. Yeah. All the calories, most of the Satan. <laughs> I just thought he did a great job, and in my mind, he did eventually figure out why. That genie was doing the running man. Why? Do you know why? No. Because that genie was cool. Oh. <laughs> I said, wait, the genie was doing a cabbage patch. Cabbage patch. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. They're similar. Yeah, and they're both cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had Damon Hellstrom as the best defender. You had him as a runner-up. Who did you have as your best defender? Despite how creepy he was with the whole ripping the dude's jaw off, I thought Namor really saved the day. That is fair. He Namor sa- did a great job. He saved He's the great. earth, man. He saved the earth. From cowardly shark attack. From outer space. Oh, cowardly space sharks. Oh, <laughs> the worst. Yeah, good call. Thank I you. think they're great. I, for one, welcome our new space shark overlords. Uh, don't joke about that, man. <laughs> I'm just saying, if they come, you got a friend in me, sharks. Oh. I think you're doing a great job. I think you're very brave. Corey thinks you're cowards. I didn't say that. Corey's soft on <laughs> humans. <laughs> oh, Corey Whitney. He's wrong for space sharks. That's maybe true. <laughs> but you know, I I You're also feel that... so bad if they come here and eat me. You're no Doctor Strange. You I will. I will like, feel I terrible wrong. that you got eaten. But I will know that our new space shark overlords had their reasons, Corey. Mm-mm. And I'm I'm sorry, and I'll miss you terribly. That's but... insincere. It is not insincere. I would miss you terribly if space sharks ate you. Oh, that's true. But I will collaborate with our space shark invaders. Because I am terrified of all sharks. Because I am the coward. Not sharks. Sharks are brave. I am scared of sharks, too. Yeah. That's fair. Okay. Cheers, I guess. (laughs) Corey. Yes. We all know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, just what are... The Hulk's rules. In this issue, the Hulk's rules are twofold. Okay. The first one, and I think it almost goes without saying, but it was said at least three times in the issue, so I think we need to say it, and that is that the Hulk is the strongest there is. That is true, but that has been a previously established Hulk rule. So, the backup is, when that fact is disputed, the Hulk has had quite enough. (laughs) And he said that, which I thought was charming. He doesn't normally bother with that flowery So the language. Hulk's rule is that the Hulk has had quite enough. Yep. And this is after being shot at, after the robot lasering him. That's when he gets like, okay, guys, not cool. That is a very good Hulk rule. Thank you. The Hulk rule that I had as a takeaway from this was, nay, nay, from strangers, stay away. Oh. Never go anywhere with a stranger. Even if that stranger is an adorable little moppet. Because mm. stranger danger, man. The Hulk knows. The Hulk should know. He should know. But the Hulk has learned his lesson now. Mm. He's not going anywhere with a stranger. Because he'll end up in hell. 
being yeah. surrounded by puny banners who are suddenly not so puny. That must have been awful. It was. It sounds terrible. Well, a lecherous demon is standing around going, Yeah. Yeah, I like this. LaRue. Oh, my name's LaRue. <laughs> Can't get enough of this. Mmm. Gross. Yeah, I agree. Stop it. It's terrible when LaRue the demon goes, Oh, yeah. I better on Hulk action. Mmm. Okay. Mmm. Yeah, I agree. It is more than enough of that from LaRue. <laughs> the Hulk and I and you are in full agreement. Okay, good. That when LaRue says, Oh, yeah. <laughs> Daddy likes this. Oh. It's terrible. Oh, man. I agree. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Come on, LaRue. Corey, what happened long ago and far away? I'm glad you asked. So, we know that Wong is a fan of the sweet science. Mm Mm-hmm. It's come up in the past that he had gotten those tickets for him and Strange to go see the thriller in Manila. Indeed. Didn't really work out because Strange was being a racist jerk. Yeah. But Wong still got to go see the fight. However, the reason that he wanted to do that nice thing for Strange is because they had had a buddy trip before. Oh yeah? When was that? To see a awesome boxing match. And that was in uh, October of 1975. And it was also an Ali fight. 74. That's interesting. Okay, it was 74? Yeah, 74. Okay. <laughs> the year before. So it predates the... The, the thriller in Manila. Yep. So, Wong, at this point, you know, was on good terms with, with Strange, had some vacation time coming up, and, and did this nice surprise thing once again, where he said, hey, I got these tickets. Um, we're going to go to Africa. We're going to go to Zaire, now the Congo. Oh, they flew through the air to get to Zaire? <laughs> Indeed they did, to see the rumble in the jungle, and uh, got to got to watch Ali TKO Foreman in the, the eighth round, and it was just a good time. Did they attend the concert that preceded the fight with James Brown and Bill Withers? You know they did. Oh, you know they did. so jealous. I know, me too. Dang. But that's, uh, that's what uh, was happening a long time ago. And far away. And far away as well. Yeah. Well, you covered the far away, but for Wong, what happened a long time ago is, just to reestablish the rules for the giant size issues, we get to choose Wong's adventure from the date of the publication of the giant size issue or the publication date of any of the backup stories. So, the Black Knight story was published in November of 1955, and... In November of 1955, we have been over Wong's mechanical prowess and interest in engineering before. You have... Oh, true. Yes, we have. <laughs> Computers. Yeah. You were giving me a skeptical look when I said I, that. I was. I forgot my... I forgot. But in addition to that, Wong has always been a bit of a thrill seeker. So when he learned that in November of 1955, Donald Campbell was going to be the first person to travel in a speedboat at speeds over 200 miles per hour. That's very fast. This intrigued Wong on a number of levels. First of all, he's a bit of a thrill seeker. Loves adventure, loves action. But also, as an engineer, he wanted to get a look at that boat before it got its chance to break, at the time, the record for water speed. So he's like, okay, I know that that happened on November 16th, that that's when that boat traveled over 200 miles per hour. But I'm really curious as to the process that went into making that boat. 
So Wong decided, I'm going to hit up about a week and a half before then and get to see under the hood of this boat. So he ended up traveling back to November 5th of 1955. Now, does that date sound somewhat familiar to you? Because it might. Because Wong ended up bumping into another time traveler, Marty McFly. Oh, shit. <laughs> who was traveling back to the date of November 5th, 1955. And he ended up being like, well, this is kind of interesting, too. So he was kind of just following around. He actually cushioned Marty McFly's fall out of that tree and kept him from dying. Mm. And some of the time travel paradoxes that come up in that that are unresolved by the film, Wong had to go about and tidy up. So that is what Wong was doing in November of 1955, having a bit of a time travel excursion, saving reality, and cleaning up from Marty McFly's nonsense. He did make it back in time to check out that boat on the 16th and uh, made a few tweaks. And that is why, in part, it was able to travel as quickly as it did. And that is what happened a long time ago. And you covered what happened far away. So, Indeed. that's what happened long ago and far away. Nice. Good job, Wong. And good job, readers, of other things probably, but listeners <laughs> to this program for bearing with us as we drink our three Manhattans and a drink that a baby would like. Um, <laughs> this was a lot of fun, Corey. I really enjoyed it. Likewise. I hope it is at all fun to listen to as well. I'm sure it is not going to be fun to edit. No. But uh, thanks for bearing with us, listeners. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and these giant size issues are made possible by your donations, and thank you for that. If you would like to contribute to the Patreon page, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. It would mean the world to me if you did. And you can contact us at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Love hearing from you guys. We're on Twitter at ttwasteland underscore. Lisa is running our Instagram page, which I don't really know how to find. Have you seen any of it? I have. There's pictures of us. Oh, well, okay. That's there you nice. have it. Once again, this is Hub welcoming our new shark overlords. And we will be back next week with another big issue. We will not necessarily be drinking three Manhattans in it, though. Uh, we will be covering the New Teen Titans annual number two. Ah. But we will see you then for that. Thank you for in advance for joining us for it. And uh, thanks for coming over, Corey. It was a good time. Indeed. Thank All you, right. everybody. And thank you, Sam Malone, Magnum P.I., Officer Mahoney, and a baby. baby. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. And they knew it. Let's go. Do you want some more of the Magnum PI? Oh, sir, thank you. You want some more shandy? Maybe a splash. It's just a baby. It's a baby drink. It's what a baby would drink. <laughs> Happy baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sell out. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, cool. If you're a space shark, you're the highest bidder. <laughs> That's a big shark. Yep. I guess we got. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.